Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. All right, welcome everyone to the Table Dallas. We're glad that you're here with us. It's another beautiful January day in Dallas. We're sorry for all of those who join us via podcast in places that have snow and ice and winter. Um, I'm sure our time will come, but today it's beautiful here. We're glad you're here at beautiful Mill Street House or wherever you are joining us around the world via the podcast. Thanks for taking time out to be with us again in the third week of our study called The Runaway Prophets. The Runaway Prophet. Um, it shouldn't be too hard for us to guess if this is your first time in the podcast or first time with us here. Uh, what book of the Bible we're studying, right? It shouldn't be too difficult. It's the book of Jonah, right. We've been working our way through the book of Jonah. Today's um, little uh, discussion, um, I titled Jonah's Fishy Faith. See what I did there? Jonah's Fishy Faith. You can see what I did there. And um, essentially, what I've been trying to do here in the last couple of weeks, and we're going to keep working our way through it here for the next several weeks, is to present to you the idea that when we ask the question, like the big elephant in the room question, typically when you're dealing with Jonah, is what? Somebody tell me, what's the big elephant in the room question that we ask? Yeah, so is this story really true? Like, did this really happen? Like, in the fish and all of that. And we've, we've all concluded that if God wanted to keep him alive in a fish, that's certainly possible, right? Yeah. It's certainly possible for God to do that. However... So much of the way the story has been written, the narrative is written, I think leads us in a completely different direction. And so we've been arguing that perhaps a better way to understand it and to not miss the intent of the author is to think of it as a moral, theological tale filled with allegory, with midrash, with parable, with philosophical treaties, with parody, satire, and just enough historical nuggets to locate it, right, in God's story. And even though it's found in the prophetic neighborhood, as we said, um, with Bible books like Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, prophetic books, it fits just as easily, and maybe even better, in the wisdom tradition of literature found in like the book of Job, which we'll look at for a moment today, the book of Ecclesiastes, right, the wisdom tradition, where wisdom is typically uh, personified as a woman or a human being. Wisdom is something that walks around, that interacts, all right? So we have that kind of a background. And so we do this because we want a careful reading of Scripture, right? We want to we uh, pay homage to the, what the original intent of the author was all about. Because we say here at the table, the Scripture wasn't written to us, but it's written for us. So part of our task is to sit there and say, okay, let's look at the original intent, and then from there we'll go and we'll figure out what is it supposed to mean to us today. And so last week we ended chapter 1 with a pretty important question, right? Who's the true worshiper of God here, Jonah or the sailors? That's where we left off in verse 17 or verse 16. Verse 17 says, yep, God put him in the fish for three days, um, that whole bit. So if the story is really about theological rethinking rather than historical accuracy, then you know we end chapter 1 with a really big question 
that we need to see answered, right? We need to see who is the real true worshiper here. Is anything going to happen with Jonah? That's how the author leaves us. Like, Jonah is the one called by God, but he's running away. We've got these pagan sailors, which we talked about last week, who have who are concerned about all these different gods, but in the end, they go, wait, Yahweh, you are the God above all gods, and they begin to offer sacrifices, right? So now we're wondering, what's going to happen to Jonah? He's been there now in the belly of the fish. And so uh, what we've done every week, and we're going to do it again this week, is we're reading the entire story to remind ourselves. So I need someone to volunteer for chapter one. Who's going to volunteer chapter one? All right, Saji's one. Who's two? All right. Mike's number two, chapter two, chapter three. Who's going to do the final chapter? Chapter four. All right. So here it is, the story of Jonah read again from the Common English Bible. Start with chapter one. Jonah chapter one. The Lord's word came to Jonah, Amittai's son. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their evil has come to my attention. So Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship headed for Tarshish. He paid the fare and went aboard to go with them to Tarshish, away from the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, so that there was a great storm on the sea. The ship looked like it might be broken to pieces. The sailors were terrified. And each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to make it lighter. Now Jonah had gone down into the hold of the vessel to lie down and was deep in sleep. The ship's officer came and said to him, How can you possibly be sleeping so deeply? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will give some thought to us so that we won't perish. Meanwhile, the sailors said to each other, Come, let's cast lots so that we might learn who is to blame for this evil that's happening to us. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, Tell us, since you're the cause of this evil happening to us, what do you do, and where are you from? What's your country, and of what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were terrified and said to him, What have you done? The men knew that Jonah was fleeing from the Lord because he had told them. They said to him, What will we do about you so that the sea will become calm around us? The sea was continuing to rage. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm around you. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. The men rowed to reach dry land, but they couldn't manage it because the sea continued to rage against them. So they called on the Lord, saying, Please, Lord, don't let us perish on account of this man's life, and don't blame us for innocent blood. You are the Lord. Whatever you want, you can do. Then they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea seized its raging. The men worshipped the Lord with a profound reverence. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made solemn promises. 
Meanwhile, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Chapter 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. From the belly of the underworld, I cried out for help. You have heard my voice. You had cast me into the depths in the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounds me. All your strong waves and rushing water passed over me. So I said, I have been driven away from your sight. Will I ever again look on your holy temple? Waters have grasped me to the point of death. The deep surrounds me. Seaweed is wrapped around my head at the base of the undersea mountains. I have sunk down to the underworld. Its bars held me with no end in sight. But you brought me out of the pit. When my endurance was weakening, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those deceived by worthless things lose their chance for mercy. But for me, I will offer a sacrifice to you with a voice of thanks, that which I have promised I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. <laughs> the Lord's word came to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and declare against it in the proclamation that I am commanding you. And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's word. Now Nineveh was indeed an enormous city, a three days walk across. Jonah started into the city walking one day, and he cried out, just 40 more days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on mourning clothes from the greatest of them to the least significant. When the word of it reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, stripped himself of his robe, covered himself with mourning clothes, and sat in ashes. Then he announced, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his officials, neither human nor animal, Cattle nor flock will taste anything, no grazing and no drinking water. Let humans and animals alike put on mourning clothes and let them call upon God forcefully. And let all persons stop their evil behavior and the violence that's under their control. He thought, who knows, God may see this and turn from his wrath so that we might not perish. God saw what they were doing that they had ceased their evil behavior, so God stopped planning to destroy them, and he didn't do it. Chapter 4. But Jonah thought this was utterly wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Come on, Lord, wasn't this precisely my point when I was back in my own land? This is why I fled to Tarshish earlier. I know that you are a merciful and compassionate God, very patient, full of faithful love, and willing not to destroy at this point, Lord, you may as well take my life from me, because it would be better for me to die than to live. The Lord responded, Is your anger a good thing? But Jonah went out from the city and sat down east of the city. There he made himself a hut and sat under it in the shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a shrub, and it grew up over Jonah, providing shade for his head and saving him from his misery. Jonah was very happy about it. But God provided a worm the next day at dawn, and it attacked the shrub so that it died. Then as the sun rose, God provided a dry east wind, and 
the sun beat down on him, his head severely faint. He begs that he might die, saying, It's better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, Is your anger about the shrub a good thing? Jonah said, Yes, my anger is good, even to the point of death. But the Lord said, You pitied the shrub, for which you didn't work, and which you didn't raise. It grew in a night and perished in a night. Yet for my part, can't I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people, who can't tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's something beautiful about reading the entire story, right? Instead of just every week, just taking a little chunk of it to be reminded, right? And if you're like me, every time you read it, probably zoom in on something a little bit different. I hear chuckles at different places where you know something hits you and you're like, oh, I, it's kind of like you're thinking, I didn't see that before, right? So last week we spoke about how the rhetorical devices that were found in, in that we saw within the first chapter help lead us along this path of thinking that this is a moral theological tale. It's a story that's been crafted in such a way to, to take our attention away from the question of, did this really happen? To the focus being away from Jonah on God, because God is the subject of this entire book, right? Even though Jonah is a character, it's really about God. So anybody remember, we looked at two rhetorical devices last week. So for those of you who were with us, does anybody remember one of those? Personification. Yeah, we saw personification, so define that for us real quickly. What do we mean by personification? Giving a non-human entity human qualities. Right, so we talked about uh, taking human qualities and putting them on inanimate objects, like the boat was treated like a like a human being, and the one, like the storm was treated that way. Good. So we saw that personification. And the other one? Hyperbole. Yeah, hyperbole. Again, explain hyperbole. It's an exaggeration to make a point. Yeah, an exaggeration to drive home a point. We saw great. Everything is described as great, 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 or even greater. And there was a building up, if you remember, especially in the Hebrew, there's a building up of this. They were afraid. They were more afraid. They were greatly afraid. And so we saw that repetition last week. But this week I want to kind of bring to our attention that in addition to the use of literary devices like hyperbole and personification, um, the story has other literary elements that um, mirror other non-historical texts in the Bible. You understand what I mean by non-historical texts? Like, we're not talking about the book of Deuteronomy or Numbers, where that is, right? We're talking about other prophetic books that may or may not include stories that are historical, right? So we have this um, scene in the book of Jonah, but we're going to have to kind of make a comparison here. So I'm going to give you three examples of what I mean by it has this literary component that's not just about hyperbole and personification. It's more than that. It belongs, as I said earlier, it's probably more closely associated with the book of Job or the book of Ecclesiastes than it is the, the minor prophets in, where, you know, in which it's located. So I want you to listen, right? Remember, we've just read through Jonah, specifically chapter 3, when it's talking about the Ninevites and how they responded. And I want you to listen to how uh, Job um, is described in the very first five verses of the book of Job, chapter 1. So, Luke's just going to read it for us, but I want you to listen for how Job is described and then think about how it might um, connect with what we've just read. 
A man in the land of Uz was named Job. That man was honest, a person of absolute integrity. He feared God and avoided evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pairs of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a vast number of servants, so that he was greater than all the people of the east. Each of his sons hosted a feast in his own house on his birthday. They invited their three sisters to come uh, to eat and drink with him. When the days of the feast had been completed, Job would send word and purify his children. Getting up early in the morning, he prepared entirely burned offerings for each one of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned and then cursed God in their hearts. Job did this regularly. So if you're reading this, it seems to me, at least as you're hearing it, it sounds like, and we know this from the book, that Job is kind of being set up here, right, as um, the most perfect God worshiper of all time. I mean, did you catch that? So here's the question. How do we see that in the text? What do we see literarily, if you can, um, from those words that gives you this idea that Job is being set up here as this is what it means to be a God worshiper? What do we see? He's described as a person of absolute integrity. So that language of absolute integrity, not like he's never wavering. It almost gives the sense that like you can't even tempt him. It's like it's not even a chance. What else? From the Hebrew perspective, like he which like when something bad happens to you, they assume that you did something to earn that. But if you have a watch, then. God has blessed you. Yeah, so you have this long list of camels and whatever intending to convey the fact that in that culture that means God, the gods, let's just use it that way, Elohim are favoring you. You've done something good because obviously it's going to be set up later in Job when everything is taken away. All of his friends, and by the way, if you have friends like Job who needs enemies, right, who are coming to him and going, every question is, what did you do wrong? All right, what else do we see that gives us the idea that Job is the perfect worshiper? Anything else? He did this every morning. Yeah, so every morning he gets up and he sacrifices. Notice it says entirely burnt offerings. He's not saving anything back. Because typically you would keep the best parts for yourself and then send everything else out. He's burning it all. We don't need to eat the best parts. We can just burn the whole thing. What else? Doesn't he like also blesses or like he makes sacrifices for his children just in case? He's like just in case they have cursed God. Yeah, I love it. He's not making the sacrifices only for himself. His children are grown, they're out, whatever, and he's like, oh wait a minute, I better offer sacrifices for them, and I love that. Just in case they sinned and they forgot about it. They didn't know it. I mean, that's that's the idea. But again, it's a. Do you really think that you know that that's? It's a literary device. Is my point, right? To make it set up. This guy has got everything. Now remember, we just read about Nineveh, chapter three. And do you remember how in, in chapter three the way it was described, how they went about their repentance? What did you see there? What did you hear or see? Fast with no bread and no water. Even the animals. Even the animals were not allowed to be. I mean, it's just like this over the top. I'm not. Gonna, what did the animals do? They had to wear uh, sack clothes. They're wearing morning clothes. What else? Morning, M O U R N. Animals 
Who was in charge of dressing all those cows? <laughs> I mean, but that's the whole point, right? It's this over the top, like even the animals, right? Even the animals have to um, uh, be covered in, have to fast and be covered in sackcloth, right? It's just a little clue, right? That we're setting up this idea, right? Look how repentant these people are. Jonah. Is Jonah going to fit in that category? That's number one. Second example I'll give you. I think this is good. Um, the structure of the book, and we've read it now three times, right? It's so neat and tidy for something that's designed to be historically accurate. So why do you think I say that? It's so neat and tidy to be something that is designed to be a historical record of what's happening. Anybody? Why do you think I say that? What history, about the structure? History doesn't always have loose ends tied up so neatly yeah. at the end of the story. Yeah, you got such a nice, yeah, nice, tidy, like, uh, what's that, you know, the, the plot. Everybody lives happily ever after. Yeah. And normally you don't see one proclamation of something and everybody all of a sudden repent. If we think about Exodus, how many times did they have to say, let my people go before they even thought? And even then, but in this book, you just see all of a sudden they're just like, okay. Yeah. It's such a clear progression. It's like, okay, here's the issue. I said, do you listen? I did my thing, said, do you listen? And you listen. It was like point A, B, C, like point A, B, C. Yeah, there's a there's just this perfect symmetry, right? Four scenes: Jonah with the sailors. Second scene: Jonah and the fish. Third scene: Jonah and Nineveh. Fourth scene: Yeah, Jonah and God, and, and that whole that whole thing. It's just the perfect symmetry of it. And then if you and we're going to look at this today, chapter two, this prayer. That gives us this, it's this, this prayer that he prays inside of the fish. You know, he's quoting from the Psalms. And, and it's just, it's such a perfect, like, beautiful setting. It almost makes you go, oh, this was, not almost, it makes you go. This was intended. And then I'll give you the cherry on top. Um, that um, God and Jonah, in chapter 4, are given the exact same number of words to speak in chapter 4. Now, how does that support the thesis that this should be a moral theological tale versus a historical record? It doesn't. It doesn't? <laughs> Not when God and man get to have equal say. Okay. So it sounds like to me that when you say that same number of words, God's giving Jonah an equal say to God's words. Okay. Seems like see, God should have the last word. You would think, right? And in a historical record, what would we see different? Potentially. I mean, when was the last time you read a story where both characters, dominant characters in the narrative, are given exactly the same amount of words? Yeah. Well, it's sort Never. of like poetic symmetry. Yeah. There is a certain symmetry, poetic piece that goes with it. And I just, each week, I just want to add just a little bit to this idea and start waking us pay attention a little bit to some of those devices. Because if we focus on fighting about what really happened, and is this really true, or could it have happened, we miss out, I think, on the author's intention. Um, which I think is clearly about have, having the audience, people like the original audience and ourselves, ask deep questions about God, about forgiveness, about the nature of mercy, and repentance, and relationships, 
and maybe even a little bit of planting seeds and sun and I don't know that whole bit about the the plant there's a whole bit there right and those deep questions I think are the ones that form the structure of the book answer these questions so let's pay attention now to chapter two so if you have your device open switch over specifically to chapter two and remember we do our heads hand and heart head about let's look at what the text says heart thinking about how do we relate that to us and enhance how is it supposed to then um, change how we act. So as we begin chapter 2, it'd be wise for us not to forget exactly where Jonah is as he prays. Again, this is really weird. Chapter 1, verse 17 tells us that he's in the belly of the fish. Just flip back to 17 for one second. As you read that piece, like the sailors are rowing, right? We said that last week. They're trying to help out. Right? How are they trying to help out Jonah? By rowing towards shore? Yeah. Yeah, they don't really want to throw him out, but when they do throw him out, they're like, I want to give you a chance. Right, Brian? I want to give you a chance to be able to swim to shore, but they can't do it. Then it says, God caused, right, a great fish to come and swallow Jonah, and he was in there. So when you hear that time frame, what's happening? How long between the events of the being thrown out and being swallowed by fish, how do you, you know, when you read that, you think, when did that happen? It seems like as soon as he threw him out, a fish was there waiting with his mouth open. <laughs> it almost sounds like that, But it? in his prayer, it seems like it's been a little bit longer because he's to the point of exhaustion. Right, again, literary devices, right? So I think maybe the reason that the translators who sectioned this off into chapters, wanted to kind of leave 17 with those events so that when you come to chapter 2, you think automatically there's been some time that has passed. But a lot a lot of that could run through Jonah's head within a minute, you know, within seconds. We could be exhausted from the whole battle and that. Yeah, that's all true. So here's my question to start with. Does anything in that prayer in chapter 2 stand out to you? As you hear it or read it, does it stand out to you anything strange or makes you wonder why Jonah would include that in his prayer? Anything that stands out to you as unusual or you're like, wow, that's interesting. In the belly of the underworld, is that just a common way to refer to the ocean? Because it implies like hell or something. Yeah, so that, that language of the belly of the underworld, we don't really use that. But, you know, in Hebrew thought, you know, there's uh, the language of desert and water have huge connotations. The desert, as we say with the children in our family table, the desert is a dark, a strange, a wait, and wild a strange and wild place or a dark and dangerous place. <coughs> so when someone goes out in the wilderness, it's a time of testing. You don't voluntarily go to the wilderness. When you're talking about the depth of the water, you're talking about death. Psalm 2, right? So when you die, you descend and you're in the water. That's a Hebrew imagery there. Good. Who else picked up on something? It looks like he's praying as if God has already saved him. He's using past tense while he's, he's supposedly going to be begging for God to save him, but he says, I called to you and you answered. Isn't that, it? yeah. And so what is his, what do you think Jonah's answer believes God's answer was to his prayer. If he's going to die. That he was going to save him. Yeah, that he was going to save him, but I suspect, like all of us, 
I don't think Jonah expected the, the salvation to be in the form of a great fish, but I love that, that you catch it past tense. He already believed it. That's a huge contrast to the Jonah we saw four or five verses before, right? Good. Who else? Mike. I thought it was interesting that in verse 7, when my endurance was weakening, I remembered the Lord. It's like there was maybe there was a period of time there where he just thought this was it, this is it for me, I'm done. And then all of a sudden he remembered the Lord. I don't know if that's the right translated no, word there, it. but yeah. It's like forget versus remember, yeah. He would have been I mean they threw him out of the ship because he had just said he disobeyed God and God is punishing me. So like God punished he wouldn't not have been thinking about God, he would have been thinking God has forsaken me. So when he says, I remembered the Lord, maybe it's like, I remembered that God is merciful despite his punishment. Right. Which is a parallel to Nineveh. Exactly. Yeah. Because now they remember and then they repent. That's right. That's it. Very good. What else? I think there's some irony in the sense that it almost comes across as he still hasn't lost his vanity in the whole situation. How so? In uh, in verse four, he says, "So I said, I have been driven away from your sight." Yeah. But he's the one running away from God, <laughs> right? So there's, he's like, it's almost like, oh, me going to Nineveh is my punishment. Yeah. What verse is that? The, that's verse four. Verse well, four. and even in three, it says, "You cast me yeah. into the depths." Yeah. Did did he? Did yeah. God put him there? I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. I think it was his own suggestion to be yeah. <laughs> And it almost yeah. kind of goes along with like the concept of like just put me out of my misery because like what is it, verse uh, verse six. I have sunk down to the underworld. It, its bars helped me with no end in sight. But you brought me out of the pit. This is while he's in the belly of the whale right. that you've brought me out of the pit. It's like, okay, cool. The end is near for me. It's fine, it's great. Whatever happens, happens. Right. But at least I don't have to go to Nineveh. <laughs> so you get this sense that there's a lot of things that uh, become clearer to Jonah in there, but there's still some sense that, like, do you not get this? Yeah. Like, there's there's like a certain irony, right? That you get some, like, oh, then I remembered, like, you know, but God did this, you know, and it's just that kind of. It's almost like a, uh, for lack of a better term, almost like a schizophrenic kind of. One moment it's God's fault. And then, oh yeah, it was me. Oh wait, no, God did this. You know, so there's still a bit of right challenge. Is there a in your reading of it in the prayer? Is there a turning point? Meaning, is there a point in Jonah's prayer where, um, in the midst of his life-threatening plunge into the water, that um, he finally just gets it, or is it just something else? Do you see in your mind some point where it's like, okay, now this is the lowest of low. I think of the turning point is chapters, verse 7. Okay. I remembered the Lord um, and then I will offer a sacrifice to you in, in verse 9 with a voice of thanks with, and that which I promised I will pay. That's a great connection. That I remembered the Lord and I, I will offer sacrifices again in the temple is, it, by the way, it mirrors um, Psalm 42, the Psalm of Asaph, where he's talking about um, all of the ways that God has failed him and he's walked away, and then he says, and then I remembered the Lord. That's a turning point. And I went into the temple to worship and offer sacrifices. 
So again, it's a connection to the to the psalm. So that is a great idea of a turning point. Who else sees one? I, I was just going to ask a question. Is this an assumption? He's making the assumption that God's going to save him, and he's going to get out of this fish. I don't or, think. Or is it bargaining? You remember what was the movie with uh, Burt Reynolds stuck out in the ocean trying to swim to shore? Yeah. <laughs> Who remembers that one? And, and, and he's way out there, and he's going. God, if you just let me get back to shore, I'll stop doing this and stop doing that, stop doing this. And the closer he got to shore, he started cutting it back down. Uh, <laughs> he, he started wading back on the shore. He goes, never mind, God, I got it. I got it. <laughs> that's a good That's a good one. I don't know which one that is, but that's exactly right. <laughs> Turning points. Who else sees one here? I don't know the answer. I mean, let, maybe the better question to ask is, what does Jonah's prayer tell us about his faith? Because it sounds like, if I understood Holly correctly, that you believe he already thinks it's happened, right, Holly? He's he's already it's already like a done deal. He's just waiting for that deliverance to come. Well, he doesn't think that he's lost his chance for mercy. He thinks other people have lost mm -hmm. their chance for mercy, but not him. And I'm thinking he's relying on his, you know, being part of God's chosen peopleness in order to okay. think that that he can get out of this, but other people shouldn't. And his last line is, for my deliverance or salvation comes from the Lord alone. So he's Acknowledging it's God yeah. can save him, not himself. So, Holly, as you read it, is he, is he truly repentant, or is he just sorry that he got caught? He seems pretty repentant to me. Yeah. As he gets both out, and he's kind of changes his mind because he's still mad about the whole thing. Right. But he's got to go to Nineveh. Yeah. I think the irritating thing about the prophets is that they are so recalcitrant despite like being spoken to directly by God. And like they know everything about God and they believe in him without question, but they're still like, maybe I can get away with running away. Did you really need that God? Yeah. And Jonah kind of reminds me of a pouting child. <laughs> you know, his faith is great, just like a child's, and you know, parents. But just, you know, okay, I want, I want to leave. I want to get away. I want to die. Oh my gosh, I'm here now. Oh, save me! And then at the end, oh, just kill me again. You know, and just that whole. It's like a juvenile kid. <laughs> but it's also very human. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. like these are the patterns of behavior that we go through. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's a great transition to moving from the head to the heart piece, which is talking about us. So I know it's hard to try to put ourselves in a similar situation. So let's not think about like, okay, am I down in the fish underwater in the depths of Sheol? But in a predicament where we sense as though, or we feel as though, right, we're like Jonah. Like God has put us here. God allowed this to happen. However, whatever language you want to, to use there, right? How do we typically respond? In other words, my question is, is our first response similar to what we see here in Jonah, which is like to cry out to God or something else? I don't know. The phrase, come on, Lord, rings really true to me. I mean, it's that heresy, basically, of like, you know, recognizing his position over us. And yes, this is what we should be doing, but come on. Like, I don't like any of these options. I think also it's 
I think one of the things that's interesting about it is it, it leans into his belief that God will inevitably destroy Nineveh, that regardless of what he says, or regardless of, because, I mean, as you go into, like, chapter 4 and, you know, the whole thing with the shrub and waiting for Nineveh to be destroyed, or to see, wait to see what happens, even in the belly of the whale, he still thinks, that, like, okay, yeah, no, I was wrong for running away, but your will will still be done. Verse 8, those deceived by worthless things lose their chance for mercy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's still sort of like he's reminding he, God. Yeah, he's yeah. like, he's <laughs> like, he's like he's going to do. this is how this is all going to go. Right. Fine, my bad, I shouldn't have run away. I'll do what you told me to. You know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you offerings in the temple. I'll, you know, your will be done here. But also down there. But yeah. But, yeah, exactly. But, but also, remember, this is what happens to these people. This is what's supposed yeah. to happen. But it's, uh, do we ever respond the same way? Come on, think about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where we want the mercy for ourselves. I think the way that we consistently respond is based on emotion. Right. How we... In the moment. Yes. In the moment. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, it goes back to what she said, where to me this just feels very human. And for me, it's, it's encouraging that... Here you have Jonah, who gives this very, you know, in many respects, very self-centered account in regards to what happened. But in but mixed in that is repentance, and mixed in that is remembering of the covenant that he has from the Lord. It's it's so not perfect, and yet God God bestows graciousness upon him and uses that. And I mean, so for me per- personally, it's encouraging because that's oftentimes what my repentance looks like. It's like, I'm sorry, but it's not really my fault. And I remember you, but I'm irritated about these qualities of you. And yet God in his mercy uses that. Yeah, I like that. I think often I have like selective hearing, like when God puts something in front of me, I'd be like, what now? What, what did you say? Or like, did you really mean it this way? Or like, maybe, maybe I misheard you. And I want to, I, my humanness wants to apply my own idea of what should happen to what I actually heard. I mean, talk, I, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, we talked this morning with the kids uh, about John the Baptist and about repentance. The, the baptism of repentance is what John was doing with those people. He was washing them clean to receive Jesus. And we talked with the kids about, is it easy to change? You know, to change your heart. And I think that that is kind of what's going on in this story. Yeah, he wants he wants to do what God says, but it means he has to change. And, you know, change is a long process for all of us. And I think that's where what speaks to me in the story is how hard it is to change. And I think part of what's being pictured in this narrative is the challenge of trusting God in the belly of the fish versus trusting God on dry land. Mm-hmm. Because that's what that's really the, the challenge that Jonah faced, right? Like, do you believe me and trust me on dry land? Jonah's answer to that both times apparently is No. No. Right? Because I'm not going there. And he tells us so clearly, that's why we have to read the whole thing. Because in chapter four, verse two, he tells us very clearly he wasn't afraid to go to Nineveh. Because of the people of Nineveh, what was he afraid of? 
that God would have mercy on them, that the gospel, using our language, the gospel was good enough not just for, for him and the people of Israel, but for these pagan people that live in, you know, in Nineveh, right? Um, so the question for us is, yeah, I think we all agree. It's easier to trust in the providence and the mercy and, and deliverance of God when we're on dry land, using the metaphor, rather than when we're in the belly of the fish, right? Would we all agree it's more difficult to trust in the belly of the fish? Or So for you, okay, so explain. Because he doesn't uh, agree to do what God told him to do and to believe that that would be the best for him and for Nenema when he's on dry land. It's only when he's in the belly of the fish that he fully turns to God and, and decries... God's mercy and his depravity and then is saved. And, you, and you're out. suggesting that we do the same thing? Yeah. yeah. When he gets back out, he turns again and says, you did what I didn't want you to do. Oh, so on. when we're on dry land, we're not really paying attention and trusting God as much as all of a sudden when we find ourselves metaphorically in the belly of the fish in we're trauma. suddenly in trauma well, in trauma suddenly okay good right, on, on, dry, on, on dry land you have free will to still make your own choices and in the belly of the wheel the belly of the whale sorry like you're you're stuck yeah like you have no choice yeah exactly you you don't you you have no control anymore and oh, we've always said that right control is an illusion yeah. that's the original sin right the desire to control everything so yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about that. That's a great observation that, yeah. Is there something we can do? Is there something we can do to encourage ourselves to trust God in the same way it, when we're on dry land as when we're in the belly of the fish, metaphorically speaking? And I keep saying fish because there's entire scholarly works on, is this a whale or a fish? The word in Hebrew is fish. There's a different word for whale. So it's Jonah and the great big fish. But that's just no, no, no. We know it that way because we've been told Jonah and the whale. Because, by the way, why? Why is it Jonah and the whale? Whale is the biggest fish. fish. But whale isn't a fish. It's a mammal. That's right. So you got this idea of oh, we need to make something big enough so that it can come up for air. No, seriously, it can come up for air, and that's how Jonah made it. I'm being honest here. And Jonah could live in the whale because there's air in Because the whale comes up, gets air, and, and whatever. Uh, right, somebody has something to say over here. Courtney said it. said, okay, good. It was in the song that we were singing earlier. Like, yes. I will follow you in the good times, but also when there's storms and when I'm and there's a reason why they're writing songs like that, Brian, right? Because he knows, they know, these writers know, that's what we struggle with, right? Not just in the storms, but also in the regular everyday stuff, will I trust, in the things I have control, in our mind we have control over, right? But am I going to trust in the middle of that, right? All right, last section about our hands, okay? Sometimes we have no trouble knowing God has saved us, right? So we talk about that idea that um, uh, in Advent, Christ comes into our life. We spend our time in Advent talking about that. But do we, do we have that same belief that God will save others in the same way that he has saved us? And using the language of other with a capital O, 
You know what I mean by the difference between other lowercase and other capital O? So capital O other is people who don't look like us, sound like us, have the same values as we do. Capital O other versus oh others, just humans as a whole. Do we believe, because that's how, by the way, that's how Jonah views the Ninevites. They are capital O other. So the question for us is, do we believe that God can save capital O others as he does us? And if so, how do we demonstrate that? I think it's often much easier for us to take godly action when we're helping people who are like us. Yeah. Like, you know, if you're, if you're well off, it's easy to write off someone who is in poverty. Or, you know, if someone doesn't look like you or believe the same things that you believe, it's easy to just be like, oh, you know, you're, you're a lost cause. Like, I can't help you. So when we say that, the follow-up question then is, what does that say about our view of God and of ourselves? Because I think we would all agree that we have that tendency to look at others as less worthy. What does it say about our view of God and ourselves? I mean, you look at the New Testament, the Jews wanted the Gentile converts to start looking like Jews. They wanted them to get circumcised, follow the Jewish law and reduce the food. And I think that's oftentimes our temptation is to think of the gospel of Jesus Christ as to convert these people into our tribe. And then once they're in our tribe, okay, now you can have access. Have access to, that's a great way to put it, access to God when that's not what the new, that's not how Christ affects the world. It's all these different types of tribes come to Christ. And yeah, because we came, when he came, he turned all of that upside down. Yeah, and I think that's really, it's not just a Jonah thing, it's not just a Jewish thing, it's, I think it's a very, it's a very human thing. Yeah. So what does it say about our view about God and ourselves? Well, I was just like, many lots of churches do that now. You're welcome to come to church as long as you look right, act right, say the right things. Right. If you don't, we don't want you here. You're not worthy. We are. And that's what Jonah was saying, right? In essence, God. And he knew. That's part that's so great in chapter four. I didn't want to go because I knew you're merciful. You would be merciful. I mean, I'm, I like the question of, do we believe God can save others? I would nudge it even more. Um, no nudging. It's the same. <laughs> yeah. let, let, me push, let me push the envelope a little more. Um, the can in there is the, the same kind of can we have of, could Jesus or could God do this with a fish? Like, is it possible? It is possible. You'd be really hard-pressed to, like, have anybody in, in a believing community say, no, I don't believe God can do that. That diminishes the power. Um, I think the can here is the same kind of diminishing. Um, my real question would be, do we believe that God saves others? And I would say, sitting in this position as I am, not being a Jew, I would be hard-pressed to say no, I'm if I'm intellectually honest, but the way I act says I don't believe that at all, which is a weird dichotomy that speaks a lot to the story we have here of do we believe God actually pushes everybody into decisions, puts them in increasingly harder situations 
to deal with coming into relationship with him. So we're in that same double mind yeah. with Jonah, right? But I think we like to, to determine who deserves yeah. to be saved. And whenever we play that deserve game is when we begin to alienate others and their right to God that we have because we don't feel like they deserve because we don't think they've done enough. But we're so busy looking on the outward of what they've not done to deserve that that we don't look at ourselves and say, did we deserve it? Yeah. Yet we have it. So if I didn't deserve it and I got it, how do I get to determine that you don't deserve it? And you guys are perfectly demonstrating why you read this as a moral theological tale. Because your immediate response to that question is, oh, wait a minute, I'm just like Jonah. That's the whole point. That we're like Jonah. We want mercy for ourselves, even when we forget God. Right? And we're like, oh, yeah, we deserve it. But when God is going to be merciful to whoever that Nineveh is for us, that person of Nineveh is for us, and we think, oh, no, that person doesn't deserve the mercy of God. Because usually that happens to me when like somebody has wronged me like personally. Yeah. Right. And, and that doesn't, yeah. get what's coming to you. Exactly. <laughs> Which gives us the idea that, you know, there's likely something about Jonah, you know, in, in the narrative of Jonah's life, because he's, he's referenced in a couple other places, so he's a, he's a real person, right? Maybe something terrible happened to him or his family and, and all of that, right? And God is driving home the point. I mean, what's yeah. in, go, ahead. go ahead. The irony of a man who has chosen to run away from God, <clears throat> wanting judgment for a place that doesn't believe in God, <laughs> is kind of odd. Yeah. <laughs> also being the instrument of their salvation. Right, and then saving them. Yeah. And then being mad that he had to save them. Yeah. <laughs> but then being happy that he has a tree to sit right. in shade. <laughs> and mad. Thank you, God. And now, oh, wait, kill me. Bring the tree. Yeah. Kill the tree, so not kill me. But I, I would say the flip side of that coin, because I agree with you, is to me, it's encouraging that Jonah becomes the vehicle of God's grace for the people of Nineveh. And yet, Jonah doesn't completely yeah. get it. And when I look at Jonah, I can very much see myself in that way, in that God can use me for the gospel of Jesus Christ, but at the same time, like Jonah, I don't completely get it, and, and at times I'm even irritated at God, and here is God in his complete graciousness, like putting up with all this foolishness. But come on, let's think about this. If you're... If you're reading the story, right, he gets vomited up and he's kind of like like Peter was saying, it's like, don't worry about it, God, I got it now, I'm on dry land, right? I, this is how I think Jonah goes to Nineveh. Repent, for the kingdom of God is in hand. But that's <laughs> Right? And, you know, so he's, you're right, he's there, and God uses it anyway. Like we've already said, he doesn't need Jonah, he doesn't need us, right? So, But that's encouraging, right? Even in the midst of our less than stellar attempts, God says, I'll make something of that, right? And we're going to have so much fun in the weeks ahead. You don't have to be perfect. Exactly. And, that's, and Jonah was far from it, right? Exactly. All right. Excellent work, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.